Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Larry Robinson from Robinson and Burns. Welcome to The Mentor, mate. Good morning to you, Mark. Now, I've known you for a long time. Um, we'll talk about in a moment how I met you, but, you know, I've never met Mr. Burns. That's a, good, that's a very good comment, and a lot of people want to meet Mr. Burns. Uh, when I set this business up 30 years ago, uh, I wanted to position it as an advisory to the big end of town. And I recognise Big end of town meaning what? A big business. Uh, so this, what they call CBD here, Central Business District in Sydney or Melbourne. Uh, the city in London, let's say. And I knew that it, it, to, to do something like that, you needed to have a presence which indicated a bit more substance. And I thought, well, Robertson on his own is okay, but so what? And I didn't want to give it a name like leadership or communication. And being half Scot, half French, I grew up in Scotland. My father would often quote the famous Scottish bard, Robbie Burns. And there's a famous stanza of his, shall I, very short, shall I share it with you? Because it yeah. sums up exactly what I do. Or would some power, the gift he gives, God, to see ourselves as others see us? It would from many a blunder free us and foolish notion, and e'en fancy airs and graces lead us and self-devotion. In other words, in the Australian vernacular, I won't quite say what it means, but I think you get the idea. Have a good look in the mirror every night and just really ask yourself, are you really the most beautiful person in the world? The answer, probably not. not. So that's what I do. I hold the mirror up and help people be a wee bit better at being themselves. And then the reason you, you put Burns after your name is to make it look like you're a bit more substance. Exactly. So, uh, But you're right. I mean, people have, particularly when they've been, uh, it's called being larried, working with me, being known as being larried. When they've had enough of me, they say, well, could you bring Burns next time? Uh, and, of course, Burns has never turned up for work yet. But it's just nice having Burns there anyway. And it just reminds me, I say, of my Scottish heritage. And I think it puts a smile on people's faces. It's funny, you know, um, you just uh, mentioned Scottish sayings. Um, maybe you can interpret this one for for me. Um, uh, what is for you never buy you? I think you've got me there. <laughs> what is for you never goes past you? That's lovely. What's before you never goes past you. That's yeah. very interesting. So if it's meant to be, it's meant to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, It'll that's stop lovely. where you are. That's lovely. But if it goes past you, don't worry about it. So yeah, yeah. You missed out. I love that. And also I think that it's very interesting. That relates, I think, to things where if things go wrong, you have a setback. Just move on. Yeah. I mean, you learn from it. Yeah. But if you, you move on. If you're pitching for something yes. and you didn't win the pitch, yep. um, you then sometimes people get, people get mortified because they prepared for it. And all, but it just wasn't meant to happen. Exactly. 
It's a bit like that case of Arthur, but if it's just not meant to happen, it doesn't matter. Get on to the next one. Talking, speaking of pitches, um, you and I did a, uh, well, we um, we did a pitch competition some years ago. We gave yep. away some money, the grants, uh, which we were funded for, and uh, we the pitches came to us thick and fast. We did a lot of them. We reviewed quite a lot of them. We did just in terms of pitching. So whenever we present, trying to raise money you know, small business owner, entrepreneur, or be pitching to win a job, or some of the people you advised for many, many years probably still are advising, uh, you know, they're pitching to win a government job, big accounting firms, etc. What is the art of pitching? Um, even if we're trying to make a speech, when we're making a speech to a big crowd, we're pitching ourselves, we're pitching mm-hmm. our own story. Um, what are some of the elements of a high-quality Successful pitch. Well, thank you. Yes, I've, I've been involved with a lot of pitches, as you said, a lot of levels from the really big, big accounting firms and massive pitches, in some cases worth over a billion US dollars, down to a young person trying to get their first job or even a university entry. And I think it really comes down to, well, two, two basic things, and then you can break it down from there. First is what I would call clarity, is, is who are you meeting with and why should they be interested in you and what is your offer, if you like. So, and how are you going to help them? Because it's, and therefore, it's the tendency I think we all fall in the trap of is when we're trying to sell ourselves, we focus a bit too much on ourselves and not enough on the, on the, the other party and the benefit. Yeah, what's in it for them? What's in it for them, the benefit we can bring them. And I've, I've fallen in that trap too in the early days. Um, so that's first element, at clarity around what is this really all about and what does success can look like for them and how can you enable that? And, and the second is what I call humanity, which is, which is, Sounds easy, but actually not. It's uh, how do you be yourself at your best, if you like, at ease, relaxed, relatively confident, not overconfident, relatively confident, um, articulate. The you that actually I would say is everyday you, which we don't, which we do pretty well. When we don't think about it, but when you're under pressure, not so easy as you know. When the lights are on you, when the lights are on you, and and you're being looked at, and you they say there's competition. And the other element of humanity, of course, is getting them to listen. As I remind people, and indeed, as you know, this book's really all about, is is why should people choose to listen to you? We don't have to listen. I mean, ears don't work very well. Your head is full of other stuff right now. So are the people listening to this. So why should they want to listen to me right now, for example? And and so making it easy for people to listen in terms of the way we communicate and share our thoughts and getting them to come with us is the biggest challenge. What do you say to people when they are, particularly Australians, because we're pretty poor at this, it's not like you don't, you've got tickets on yourself. Stop, stop talking about yourself. I mean, I think, again, as I touched on, it's, it's really about what's in it for, for people. Who's your target market, if you like? And, and how can you help them? I mean, I'm in the help business. I've always introduced myself. I'm in the help business. I'm here to help. And, and for me, Whoever I'm working with, and whether it's an individual, as I said, a young person or a big corporation, it's, it's helping them succeed, inverted commas. What does that look like? And that almost always involves involving other people. In other words, you're not going to succeed on our own. None of us will succeed on our own, however smart you are, good-looking you are, um, wealthy you are, and so forth. We need others to support us in one way or another, whether it's to work with us, invest in us, um, back us of some kind. As I said, even listen to us. And so it's it's making, first of all, thinking, well, what is... What's the context of this and, and, and who are these people and what's going on in their lives and, and what does success look like for them and how can I enable that? What is this product or service that I have 
going to help, what going to do for them to enable that journey. So I think we need to start there rather than with ourselves. And again, I've fallen in that trap. I remember years ago working with a very, very, very smart consultant to one of the big famous consulting firms. And, and after about an hour, uh, he said to me, you didn't need to prove yourself, Larry. You would come with a great recommendation. And frankly, without being rude, you wouldn't be here if I didn't think you could help me. And I thought about it afterwards. And I thought I went there because I had a this sort of anxiety that I knew he didn't really, I always felt he didn't want to work with this guy. I, a few years, a year before I'd offered it and he'd rather turned it down. And then his boss eventually said he, he, he needs to get Larry. But so I went there with a bit of anxiety, I think. I went there with a bit of a, bit of a need to prove myself, to try and get the sale of better commerce. And it was a huge lesson to me. Um, it, it, it's not about you, actually. I mean, there needs to be trust, of course, but it's really about how they feel about you and how they feel about your service or product. But, but were you, did you feel as though in that discussion where you were actually going there to give him help, um, did you feel as though you were trying to Prove your position, were you? Yes, or I did. Did he feel that? I don't think I use the pronoun I all the time. I'm happy to say it wasn't that bad. Um, but but I think it was perhaps you know too many things I was trying to shovel down his throat. As I've as I've learned, intent before content. I think we can fall, all fall in the trap, and I see it with my clients, and you've seen it, I'm sure, too many times. Even when we did that exercise that we discussed a couple of years ago on on the pitching. We can fall in the trap of having too much content, which uh, partly because of an anxiety to need to prove ourselves. Um, I remember giving a, a, a talk at, at a well-known organization. The first time around, I was sort of over-prepared. I remember somebody came up to me after and said, Larry, that was great, but it wasn't really you. If we wanted a, a PhD in leadership, we'd have got somebody from Harvard or from Sydney University. We wanted Larry. So the next time I went back, I just simply had a simple few dot points, a flip chart, and afterwards, he said, thank you. That was great. Was okay, we, oh, I'm going to ask you this then. Who is Larry? Who is Larry? I think that's a good title for your book, by the way. But yeah. who is Larry? Well, I mean, but then it makes it all about me, of course. <laughs> no, but who is Larry? Who is Larry Robertson? It's, because, great, it's, it's an interesting question. You've just finished a book. And we'll yes. talk about that in a moment. But you just finished a book. Um, you sort of learn about yourself when you write a book. So mm, You do. Who is Larry? Larry Robertson. Yeah, I think Larry is somebody. Larry is somebody who doesn't take himself very seriously. That's probably number one remark, which has got me in trouble sometimes. I mean, I take what I do seriously, and I take the people I do it with very seriously. But I've had clients say to me, "Be a bit careful of that self-deprecation. Once people get to know you, uh, they understand it." But some people, you know, so I remember one was um, a very well-known telco company CEO said to me, "We're we're an engineering organisation. We're very factual and black and white here." And the sort of nuances that you you use are, are interesting, but if people don't get it straight away, so if you over self deprecate, do yourself down um, that health fellow, well met sort of British sort of style, um, could discount their credibility in you. And I and I thought it was a really good point. So again, it's about reading the audience and knowing who you're dealing with. So which Larry do I take? Do I take? So in this book, I talk about authenticity. Of course, it's one of the three cues for me, authenticity. But I talk about appropriate authenticity. Because there are different shades of Larry or different shades of Mark, depending on the circumstance. If somebody comes in here now in tears, clearly they're going to get a very different Mark or Larry than we're, the way they're offering each other right now. If somebody comes with a bottle of champagne a bit early in the morning, but maybe we'll grin and say, hey, let's get some glasses. So that we respond to the circumstance we're in. But within all that, there is a core, a core, if you like, of, of character, of who are we in terms of standards and values and behaviours and and, and, and self-recognition, I guess. But also the things like humility and, and humour, they're terribly important. Um, there's, there's confidence. 
uh, there's a bit of comp capability, hopefully. And then there's consistency around, you know, am, I, am I showing up the way that people expect me to show up in this circumstance? So it's even dress. I mean, I mean, even asked Jessica last night, you know, what would be, she, there was nothing about dress code or something. I said, what should I wear? Um, and uh, we agreed probably just a T-shirt would get away with it. Yeah, it probably wasn't. It was so hot this morning, I put on a T-shirt. But if you're going to a, a boardroom with some big company down the road, you're probably going to put on a suit and maybe in retire. So the sort of appropriateness, even just in the dress, let alone the manner, am I going to sit there and listen for the next hour and try to learn? Or am I going to actually going to say something and put my hand up and, and get in the game? Should you try to shock, though? I mean, so, for example, let's say you're going to a – you know, one of the big four accounting firms, um, they're seeking someone to help them out on a pitch that they might be going to make to a government, for example, you know, and uh, it, could, it could be a massive big deal for them. Yeah. Um, and you know they're more than likely going to turn up there with a suit and tie on. Uh, would, would Larry or would you advise somebody who's trying to win that job to have perhaps in, the, in trying to be authentic, um, perhaps walk in there and be a little bit – Adventurous, perhaps not wear a tie, wear a jacket and open it shirt, or be very adventurous, turn up in a t-shirt like I'm dressed like today. Um, or is it always about meeting the standards of the person you're talking to? I think it's it's I think it's recognizing what's going to make them comfortable. There's that, and then there's, there's an element of respect. Of so course. it's about comfort, comfort. Yeah, comfort. Uh, uh, Am I comfortable with this person? Yeah. And there's an element of respect, I think. I mean, I could tell you a story about it when I worked in advertising. Mm -hmm. I worked for the, what was lucky enough to be the world's most creative agency for a few years after my army career. It was an extraordinary place. I just loved it. And I remember the pitch we did there for, for British Rail. I'll try and do 30 seconds. Yeah, you right? yeah, go for it. British Rail. And as you can imagine, rail companies, and we know the situation here, well, it's getting a lot better. Trains don't leave on time. They're not clean. You've got all the drama that goes on in railway stations. So, so they got there early in the boardroom of this client, and they dressed it up to be like a waiting room at a railway station. And and they locked the doors, and they waited inside, and um, and then the client was was allowed to come, and so they were met by the the person doing the head of the, head of the pitch, this client director, who was properly dressed in a suit and tie, because it was the full board of this, this British Rail. And he said, I'm sorry, I was running a bit late. Would you mind waiting? So he kept them waiting. And they kept waiting. And then there was a loudspeaker saying that the train is delayed. Um, and there were various other things going on, well, you can imagine. And then some sort of somebody came in and sort of drunk and collapsed in the corner. And somebody spilled some Coca-Cola or something. This was in their in their office. And eventually the double doors open, and then in they walk, and there's just complete chaos. And they say, Welcome to British Rail. This is the customer experience every day. We had to help you sort it out. They got the cut. So and that's, that was a shock. Yeah, and that's a shock. So, um, and the shock being in the form of theatre. So, how important is theatre in telling a story and or win, and by the way, winning a pitch yeah. or, or presenting to an audience? How important is theatre? And is it dangerous to do theatre if you're no good at it? Well, I think that second part of the question is probably true, yes. I mean, none of us, not all of the great actors. But we can, most of us can tell a story. Um, I, what, for the people, the work that I do it tends to be, as you, we've discussed, sort of they're, they're bigger organisations and they're probably pitching to other big organisations. So there's a level of, of expectation around the sort of formality, at least behaviour. But I, I would like, to, I, I try to get, and I do shock my clients, I mean, as I said, and then I drive some of them completely bonkers. Um, 
because I'm passionate about their success. And no one ever doubts my passion for their success. I'm happy to say I get that feedback. Your enthusiasm is you know, electric, et cetera. Um, but in the process, they do get, you know, occasionally I push sometimes quite hard. And because I just know what they're capable of. And I said, you know, unfortunately, there's another, there's another organization down the road who does very similar things to you. So why should they choose you versus them? It's going to come down to the people, frankly. You may have technology, they've got technology and so forth. So how do we bring the best out of these people? Your personality, the way you work together, the, the, the sense of fun you have, and, and the experience you're going to give these people, what I call an emotional experience, you're going to give this client. Because even the most analytical of us remember the feeling as long after they've forgotten the facts. So what is the feeling you want to leave them with that says, hmm, I think I could work with them, or at least stay in the race? And that's to me is always the excitement of it. So going back to your comment about stories, I mean, I will I will get it depends a bit on the talent I'm dealing with in inverted commas. Um, but if I've got a lead partner or a lead executive um, in a, in an organisation or even a younger person, and they're capable of using words like I want you to imagine this, for example, and then you paint a picture, a visual picture, uh, then you draw people in because most people would be happy to respond to an imagining invitation. Good example. For example, if we went back to the British Rail pitch yeah. that you guys are doing to the British Rail, instead of doing all the theatre, you could just say, I just want you to imagine, you yeah. to imagine you're yeah. sitting at the railway station in yeah. uh, Paddington yeah. and you're waiting for the train and you've got an important appointment coming up at 9 p.m., 9 a.m. and it's now 8 a.m. and it takes a good half an hour to get there, blah, blah, blah. But the train's late. And by the way, someone walks up to you, sits next to you who's really scruffy and uh, spills all their food over you or something. Yeah. That's what you mean. So yeah. I want you to imagine. You t exactly. That. You paint the picture yeah. and tell the story. And that can certainly, certainly work, but it's got to be done well. Yeah. And you might, have the, you might back it up with a slide, I guess. You might have a picture of something just to, just to bring people in, but you wouldn't put a lot of words on there, but there might be some image. You could even have a very short video, very short video, yeah. you know, 30 seconds, something like that. Very interesting. So um, I, I want to go to the break and come straight back. But when we come back from the break, I want to talk about um, the, the importance of preparedness. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm back from the break. Um, I'm here with Larry Robinson. Larry Robinson from Robinson Burns. Uh, Burns doesn't exist, um, but it doesn't matter. It paints a good picture, and that's sort of what we're talking about here, and we're going to talk about Larry's book in a second too. Um, but one of the things I learned um, many years ago, so I should uh, explain this, um, Larry was introduced to me by a guy called Rob Dempsey maybe 25 years ago. In 1998. Ago. Is that what? 25 years ago, exactly. 25 years ago. There you go. And uh, I was asked – I just set up the wizard business, and I was actually asked by um, – I think I'd put out a book around that that point. I'd already uh, put a book out about borrowing money or something along those lines. And I was asked to come and uh, speak at an Anthony Robbins function at the uh, Sydney Casino. Yep. And uh, there was like a 1,000 people there. I'd never made a presentation before in my life. And uh, Rob Dempsey was sort of doing my PR work, et cetera, media stuff, uh, very early stages. I haven't seen Rob for many years, but um, – Rob said, look, you better get this bloke called Larry Robinson along to help you prepare for it because I had no idea what preparing was all about. Um, and preparation, I'd learnt very quickly from that that day, um, is key to anything you're about to do, especially if you're going to do it for the first time. I'm a bit more easygoing these days because I've done hundreds and literally hundreds of these things, so I don't need to prepare as much. But the reason, I, the reason why I felt preparation was important, Larry, is um, – because it took my nerves away because I knew my topic. I knew mm. I knew the content. I already knew the topic, but I knew the content of what I was going to present to these people. Yeah. Um, do you remember the occasion? I remember very well. I remember walking into your office in Double Bay. Yep. Um, just down off New South Dead Road and just to the left or somewhere, not Street, right. on one of those streets. Like no, not, it was Bay Street. Bay Street. And it was a fairly low-level office yep. on, the, on the left-hand side, yep. I think. I remember very well. And I think Robert heard of me because well, I was doing quite a bit of work with BHP, and they were in real trouble at that time, if you remember. And and I was fortunate enough to be introduced to the to the new chairman. And there'd been some major sort of dramatic situations, and and I'm proud to say, and he would kind of I think endorse it, helped him get through what was a very challenging situation. Anyway, Rob was aware of that, and so he said, "I think you'll like Mark. I think Mark will tolerate you. Uh, he'll find you a bit of required taste, but most people do." So I remember sitting down with him. We chatted away about this, and I and to me, going back to what I said, uh, there are two two elements of this of a preparation: clarity. What is the one thing you want them to go away with? Because even the smartest people can only think one thought at a time, consciously. So what is the headline message or big idea? And we were talking, if I remember, you were talking to a bunch of average middle-aged people looking to perhaps buy their first or more likely second home or even third investment properties. And how to do that using other people's money, if I recall. Yeah, debt is good. Exactly. Debt is good. And... Um, so, so the, the, the sort of message was either oh, debt is good, something like that, or this is a way to, to increase your wealth or get ahead. So we get that. Now, okay, well, let, let's now, having got that, we obviously worked out who the audience was. We've done who's the audience, why are they all there, the context, the Anthony Robbins show, as it were. And then it is a show too, by the it way. It is a show. It is. And I, I sat there and watched. I sat with Rob and your then wife. I remember in the yeah, back row. Yeah. We sat there with our hands. We were holding hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> our it fingers was, crossed. It was scary. Then you, and then you, you had little, you had little cards. You dropped the cards. I dropped the cards. <laughs> I remember so well. As soon as I got on the stage. I remember. And we all gasped. And your wife, we all grabbed each other's hands like this. 
<laughs> anyway, you got through it, and they were because I'd remember, I'd yeah. memorised the cards. You had, you did pretty well, frankly. And as I've said to you, it's extraordinary. And I had to give a talk on Saturday. I was a wee bit nervous. I had some quite smart people, all very good speakers. And I, I, I had a few dot point notes, and I prepared them a bit like you. I didn't drop them; I just put them in my pocket. And then I got up. Then what am I going to say? But the feedback was, it was measured, it was calm, it was engaging because I paused. I had a very clear big message. Oh, by the way, that's something you, you you used to say to me. When you have a pause, just like you did then, people tend to listen a bit yeah. harder to what yeah. you're about to say. Exactly. Instead of just talking, have a break. And exactly. In chunks. I mean, I, it, I I mentioned I've got some French blood in me, so I talk English in a French way, which is therefore quite excited. But if I'm if I'm in a situation where I'm pitching myself or I'm working with clients or particularly giving a talk myself. Yeah, I'm very conscious of what I call my six P's drill. You pause for thought, what's going on there, then you punch your point with passion and purpose, then you pause again to let them absorb it. Um, I call it six P's drill because it requires a bit of discipline and it's hard when you're a bit nervous. But once you realize that's actually what we do every day in meaningful conversation, once you actually, and I demonstrate that, once you realize that's actually what I do every day, all of us, I mean, we work with 30 countries, uh, different nationalities. We all do this in meaningful conversation. So all I'm asking people to do is to stand up on that stage as you did all those years ago and have a conversation with that audience and ideally pick one person there, another person over there, another one over there. Ignore the lawyers. You're one of them anyway. Ignore the lawyers. They're going to give you a deadpan face and no encouragement, but look at the friendly-looking ones and they'll give you a nod or a smile and that gives you encouragement. So, that, Can I stop? That's yeah. very important. That, but that, that is a very important point. Mm. Find someone in the audience yeah. that is a friendly and when they nod, it's it's the weirdest thing. It gives you an, it gives you that little bit more energy yeah. to keep going. You're like it's like what you are saying is correct. It's one of the reasons why when we see politicians on television, they're speaking, being interviewed by someone. They always have someone standing behind them who's nodding furiously, <laughs> that, which is like they plant they plant them there. So it makes me think watching mm. the the, the uh, person that oh he's correct. Yeah. It's a bit of a game politicians play all the time. I always watch for these dudes because. I just think it's such great theatre. I'm um, watching people, you know, nodding furiously at whatever the Premier or the Prime Minister is saying, particularly during the COVID period when we used to see the Premier every day. You used to see them sitting all standing behind him, nodding. But that's important. Find the person in the crowd who's friendly and who's nodding. Don't look at somebody who's exactly. giving you the deadpan. Who's got prove it written all over their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. prove it, prove it, prove it. Prove it. Exactly. That's very important. So yeah. I, I think we just I just wanted to pause on that. Then in you. What, what you said was give the audience a moment to take a breath. Yeah, and, and think you, about it, and think about what you said. Give them a moment, a moment with your pause, to also anticipate about what you might be going to say. Yeah, so so they're more engaged. So they reflect on what you've said and how you've said it, and what and they compare your idea with their ideas about that topic. You know that makes sense. You know, okay, yeah, I like this. I'll come with them a bit longer. So people listen on trust, which is the authenticity point. And like, I get a sense: is this the the real Mark or Larry, or is he over rehearsed, or is he wedded to a script, or very uncomfortable or nervous? So we listen on trust. We buy in on emotion. I'm feeling good about this. He's talking to me in a way I normally listen, which is short bursts of words with feeling. People don't listen to facts. We look at facts. We don't listen to them. So we have to talk with a feeling, with energy. And then we pause again, and that gives people to absorb and think about, okay, I'm going to come further. So we listen on trust, we buy in on emotion, and we justify or come on the journey with the content. I'll have some more of this. And that's what we all do every day in our normal one-on-one -on -one meaningful conversation, not chit-chat, but meaningful conversation. 
when we're talking to a, a partner, a colleague, friend about something important or, a, or a, an employee about something important and they want to share something with us. So we're talking in a, in a conversational way and they're, although they're not talking back, they're responding as you're doing now with a nod or a smile or a frown. Um, can I tell a tiny story? Is there time for a tiny story? Mm. Uh, I'm at the, the biggest crowd I've ever, ever spoken to, and you've beaten me, was about 600 in London a few years ago. It was a, a conference on leadership. I was pretty nervous. Why, why do they want me all the way from Sydney? Anyway, I went there, three-day thing. You know the type. And, then, um, and so my brother-in-law lives in London. And I said to him, Scotty, uh, for the price of a good lunch, I want you to sit. I'm gonna, I'll get you in. I want you to sit about row one or two near the in front of the podium. And then the night before the conference, was a cocktail party for the speakers, et cetera. And there was a chap I was in the army with who then had a quite a big job in the city in London. And I said, oh, Tim, you know, I'm, he said, I'm looking forward to hearing you tomorrow. I said, yeah, I'm a bit nervous. Can you get somewhere I can see you? Smile, nod, thumbs up, done. I get up there and I say, well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be back in London using my six-piece drill. Scotty, great to see you. Thanks for coming. And Tim, great to see you too. You after all this time. We've got so much to catch up on. And at that moment, a, a lady, um, I think what I then said, and you see, ladies, and the reason I'm happy to be in London, I'm among friends. And at that moment, a woman over here on the, I don't know, started nodding and smiling. And I said, oh, um, do you know what I mean? What's your name? And she said, Barbara. I said, where are you from? From Birmingham. I said, oh, you're an out-of-towner like me. So suddenly I had three people who were friendly. And then the room started, all, people started leaning in and smiling. And I knew I had most of them. There was a classic lawyer type person in there somewhere. I ignored him. But I knew I had the room with me. And all I needed to do having prepared myself with the clarity of the core message, two or three points to support it, a couple of examples or stories to bring it to life. Maybe some, I might have a few dot point notes keep me on track. I wouldn't have a script, I might have a few dot points, so I'd advise that because the brain goes blank occasionally. Um, you might have some material on the screen. I'm, bit, I'm not a great fan of PowerPoint or, or Keynote. I mean, those things are useful. But if they're visual, they're okay. But they mustn't take over because you're the most important visual aid of the speaker. Um, and, and the audience's imagination is their most important visual aid. What they go away with, what they remember, what they think about afterwards is the most important thing. I'm not going to take the slides away. That's 100%. I know I, even today I still don't do PowerPoints in my presentations to audiences. On the day we were talking about when, when I spoke with Anthony Robbins Function, it was, there were a 1,000 people in the audience, and I've actually done 8,000. That's my biggest audience, um, which I did at the, um, at the entertainment centre. Um, but the, that that particular day, I, I should just explain what happened. So, um, I, I had no, I've never, I didn't really know much about Anthony Robbins to be honest with you. I heard of him, but that's about all I yeah. know. And um, the crowd gets quite wild, and um, and they sort of get a bit hysterical, and they get him in, a, they hype him up. Mm. And when I was at backstage before I was about to go on, the guy said to me, "Look, what we're going to do is we're going to get the crowd up, and they're going to be clapping into it like in in sort of all together at the same time, and there would be music going, and there was it was like a movie, and uh, they they could they'll stand up and they could even stand up in the chairs, and uh, they'll keep clapping until you go out and you've got to do something. So I had these speaking cards, right. like ten cards in my hand, which are about the size of my hand, and um, I had them ready just just to remind me what to talk about. He said, "But when you go out, they won't stop clapping." until you wave your arms in front of them and, and make this loud noise. I said, you're serious? And, uh, and I said, he said, yeah, that's the only way they'll stop. And then they'll sit, they know that that's a cue for them to sit down and listen. Oh, my God. And um, I ran out to the front of the stage and I did this with my arms. And, and as I did that, of yeah, course, they, all my, my cue cards all just spread well. all over the joint. I was very nervous. 
And one of the things that got me through being nervous was once I dropped those cue cards, I knew what to say it was my preparation. Yeah. I had I'd written the cards myself, so therefore I knew what was on them. But my preparation was good. And I actually all of a sudden knew that I was prepared. I looked into the audience and in the audience, because you told me to, um, I was looking around to find, to find a nodder or a supporter. And um, you wouldn't believe it. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I looked in there and there was my estranged father-in-law. Oh, no. Sitting no, there that, staring no. at me. And I went, oh, my God. And it gave me the shock of my life. And I, I thought, was sitting next to his daughter. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah, but but I, I didn't talk to him and she didn't talk to him. And, no. um, and at the time. And... Uh, <laughs> I thought, shit, I've got to turn away from him. Yeah, worse than the lawyer. And I, 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 absolutely. Our estranged father-in-law, like sitting in the audience. Like I hadn't seen him for like six months or something. Yep. And I immediately thought, I've got to find someone friendly. So I found myself with someone friendly. Yep. Normally you find the friendlies right at the front. You do. They're right at the front of the audience. And they're, as, as you say, they're, they're nodding their head. And, um, and, I, and you know, I think that, that the talk went on to be quite successful. But it was at the end of the day, I, I quite enjoyed it. But And then I got a bit addicted to these things and I've done many more. Um, Larry, let's... So you decided some years ago now, I remember it was around COVID, maybe you can explain the period, to write a book. Explain to me why you wrote, why I listen to, work with, and follow you. Why? Tell me, tell me why you why that's, you wrote this. That's book. a good question. Do we really need, need another book on leadership? And a lot of my clients for years they said, "We've got to, buy, we've got to write a book, Larry." And I said, "Really? Um, uh, there's lots of books out there, and I'm sure they're, they're far better written than I could do." Anyway, uh, I'm quite busy, and I was a lot of travel at that time. But I suppose it eventually did come to me, I need to do something. And I sat down and I realized I talked to people who had written books in this area and they said, the only way to do it is to go away. You can't do it at home. You can't do it, whatever. And although I was traveling, impossible, as you know, when you're traveling, you're just tired, you're busy. So what I would do is I'd add on a couple of days. I was going to Brisbane, I might do an extra two days, and say the Gold Coast, something like that, or New Zealand. And that was good because I could then be, I would turn off the iPhone and I would just sit in a little rented apartment for 48 hours and look at the sea or something. Uh, and and start thinking. And I started to put stories together, funny enough. So the, the, the stories became the sort of backbone of the, of, the, of the book. And I had this core philosophy, which you remember, which I've touched on, which is about mutual trust, respect, and purpose, which my three cues bring to life. And so I thought, well, that's sort of the framework. And the stories will obviously be the, be the sort of content. And, and then the question of putting it all together. So I got to a point um, as COVID began, where I had all that. and. And then I realized, well, this is the time my eldest daughter said to me, this is the time to finish it. So we had a little rented a rental place just down the road here, and it was empty. We'd lost the tenant. And so I put a mattress in the back of my ute and a trestle table and a chair and a lamp. And I set off, um, and I pretended I was cool in Surrey Hills for 48 hours every week and, and uh, write the book, which was actually very successful. I sat there, my little trestle table, which was absolutely empty, looking out over the paddock of Paddington. And go down and get a coffee occasionally and pretend I was a student again. Um, and basically got on top of it, which was terrific. And then there's a question what to do with it. Um, and, and so I talked to a, I introduced a book coach. He was very helpful, Andrew Griffiths, based in Tasmania. And he was, he'd written lots of self help books and was quite, was quite helpful and, and quite challenging. You know? um, and it made me answer about 27 questions on all sorts of things. Um, and then I went to Booktopia because I'd helped them do the IPO, the float of Booktopia. So I talked to um, uh, Mr. Nash, who was the CEO, and, and he introduced some of his people. And they were very complimentary. But I was getting sort of questions like, well, it's, it's quite nicely written. It's good. I like your ideas, but you're not very well known, are you? I said, well, 
I'm a film star, football star, pop star. I haven't jumped out of a plane without a parachute and lived to tell the tale. No, not really. But my response was always, but I don't think that woman, J.K. Rowling, a very well-known, when she sat at that cafe in Edinburgh, I read about Harry Potter. I don't think she's very well-known then either, do you? And they looked a bit bemused. And so my wife, Mickey, said to me, this is Australia, the celebrity mad. You go back, I'm in London every week, well, not week, every month. Go and find a London publisher. So with the help of the Australian Publishing Association, I did. And I, I found a really nice small publishing house and they were very kind. And with a bit of argy-bargy battling and forwards, we got there. And so this was finally went to print in July and, and Alan and Unwin are kindly doing the distribution here, uh, which I think you know that firm. Yep. Um, and they're the agents for this publisher in London profile. Um, so I'm excited about it, I'm a bit nervous because you know what was just a book from me and my family and then the publisher is suddenly now out there. And you know, not everyone's gonna think it's wonderful. I know that. <laughs> tell, you, tell me about the book, tell me through some, some of the chapters now. Yeah, so so the, the core of it really is is asking the question, why do we need more better leadership? And I my answer to that is that despite all the programme or leadership, we're still getting leaders who don't my language don't truly lead. What does that mean? They're not really giving their all. They're not being authentic. They're not really engaging people well enough, not making people feel special, not connecting, not interested in people sufficiently uh, and not giving them, and, and also not being clear about what's going on and how we do things together. So I just feel that despite all the business courses that are out there, um, it needed a book which had brought a bit more of the humanity into it and recognize that communication is 80% of a leader's job. I mean, you can be the smartest kid on the block, but if no one's listening, no one's following. If they're not following, you're not leading, I'm afraid. So how do you get people to listen? How do you get people to, to want to come with you? How do you get people to, to, uh, to succeed with you and you help them succeed? That's what this is about. And the stories I, I picked up, um, I think work well. I mean, there was a, I suspect, and obviously I had to disguise them a wee bit. You're not in there, don't worry. Um, I had to disguise them a wee bit um, so I didn't get totally sued. There are a bit, some of them were quite corporate, but not all. There's a couple of my army ones, advertising ones. But what they're trying to bring out bring to life are these three areas of mutual trust, which is which is the authenticity, the AQ, the, the mutual respect, which is the EQ, the empathy, and the IQ, which is the intent or mutual purpose. They try to they bring those to life. AQ, EQ, and IQ. AQ, EQ, IQ. So it's a bit of a pun, of course, on, on EQ and IQ. Totally, totally. Yeah. Um, I, I guess so so in terms of, let's say I'm trying to pick an audience, so someone who might want to buy it, let's say someone's just starting a business up. Yep. Um, they decide they want to use social media to um, build awareness program around their product or the service. Uh, or it could be just a, they could be just building an information program, trying to build an audience where they actually educate people, for example. Um, why would they buy that book? What, what do you expect they would get out of that book? Yeah, well, I, I think it starts, good question, but I think what it starts with is that all of us are leaders of thought. So the person you're describing is a leader of thought. You may not be leading a vast organization. I don't lead a vast organization, but I'm leading your thinking, if you like, right now, or trying to. Mm. And, and that individual needs to lead the thinking of his potential customers, backers, supporters, even the, even the people going to do the media for him. And they need to be comfortable with him or her. And, and that's about getting to know who he is and or she is and what do they stand for, why they're doing what they do. Is there something more than just making money? Do they actually believe in what they're doing? Is there a bit of a passion and real commitment to it? Um, are they thinking about the audience? Are they, trying, are they trying to sell widgets? Or are they actually thinking, as I said earlier, uh, what do the audience need? And not just need, but what do they want? And how can I help them as a supplier, help them get that? So that, that starts with attitude, if you like. My, my, my mindset attitude has to be, this is about me helping 
these customers or buyers or whoever whoever it is. Um, and positioning a bit, a bit of a structure then, okay, how do I position this? It's interesting, Larry, uh, because do you think the word leadership needs another word in front of it? Because leadership means lots of things. But yeah, exactly. So, for example, you just said something that sort of struck chord with me. Um, the word thought seems to me to properly belong in front of the word leadership. Like, so thought leadership. Um, um, I might be trying to sell a product to some people whereby it could be perfume, for example, and my, but my perfume might have some mysticism associated with it, might have the smells of the Middle East, have a name that's sort of uh, mystical, <laughs> um, might have a mystical shape, for example, in the bottle. So uh, uh, mysticism leadership, in other words, lead them into mysticism, yes. Yes. lead them into my thoughts. Yes, exactly. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Uh, exactly. Uh, but, but it's not thought leadership. This book is thought leadership, in other words, printed material thought leadership. I'm talking about being a leader of thought. In other words, I'm leading somebody's thinking. That's where it starts. Yeah. And it starts by informing somebody, so information. Then you need to influence them to get them to feel about it. So you get them to know something. It's you know, the, the sun is shining. You get them to feel about it. It's going to be a great day. <laughs> you get them to do something with it, which is to inspire them. Which is let's go out for a walk. So that's what leaders do. They 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 position something in terms of this is the situation we're in. Let's say this is what we're trying to do. Uh, they so that's the information. Then they influence people the followers, if you like, to feel interested, curious, they start to buy into it. And then they make a pathway to go clearly how we can go and do this together, which is the inspiration. And that is no different whether my military training, frankly, Santos and that sort of thing, young officer, through to the, the person you're describing, that lady or that guy who's got that product, and they've got to, people need to know about the product. There's plenty of, of perfumes and scents out there and all that, or to toilet where they are, plenty of those out there. So what's different about it? Why should they be interested in it? And why should they want to go and pick it up in the store? Now, what you might not know about me is that between the British Army, as I left as a captain and all that sort of thing, and then my advertising career, I spent six months selling expensive motor cars in Park Lane in London. Uh, and my clients were rich Arab sheikhs, pop stars. I sell the cars to the Who and Elton John um, and uh, landed gentry. And I learned about selling up till then in my life, 26 years, that I'd not done, I'd had no, not a commercial brain in my body. But I had a brilliant sales manager who liked to wear diamond, diamond rings. He was Indian. And the more we worked, the harder we worked, the bigger his diamonds got. And I learned very quickly what is, how do you sell something and expect whether it's a motor car or a book or a product. And again, it's not about me. It's actually less about the product. It's more about the experience that that individual is seeking and what's going to be different for him and how will it help, help how will it make him or her feel uh, and feel that they're achieving something with wearing. Like we all, whether it's our favorite bit of clothing we wear, a car we might drive, a restaurant we go to, we feel good about it. That's what this is about. I've got a friend who's a great, one of the best salespeople of cars that, exist in this country yep. and he's actually been on the show and um i think i've heard him actually yeah yep. johnny rocker and right, one yep. thing is i always notice like I, i'm forever got a, a new car and uh like literally every six months and uh and i always buy cars that he sells yeah and he always manages to tell me he gets me every time but he manages to tell me why that car, car that he's talking about right now is better than the one i've currently got 
he just automatically doesn't. And I, I'm thinking, so, mate, you don't need to sell me because I've been friends of yours for a million years, but you don't need to sell me. But he does it automatically. And he puts me in a position when I, th- I immediately think, shit, that is a better car for some reason. It's, and I, and in, my, in my case, I'm not looking for status in car driving um, or the status I'm, I'm not looking for rich status. Mm. I'm not mm. seeking that. I'm more seeking um, fun, durability, technology, new technology, cool, yep. uh, et cetera. There's a number of other factors I'm looking for. Yes. And uh, he knows that about me. Of course. And he automatically puts it in front of me every time. And he doesn't need to sell me a car. Like he's the biggest uh, – his franchise sells – is the biggest – Toyota Lexus dealership in the Southern Hemisphere. So it's not as if he's hanging out for one more sale from me, to me. Um, he doesn't need to. But he automatically does it. He puts me in that position using certain words that he's already identified. It's like just totally automatic. And he sells me every single time. And I and I walk away thinking, oh, that, mate, that sounds like a new car. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> like I always drive black cars. This is a good example. I always drive black cars. I, I don't think I've ever had another color car. Recently, he said to me, I got this white Land Cruiser and it's really cool looking. It's got dark windows, dark trim, uh, dark wheels. It's the latest, you know, Land Cruiser. It's the, um, you know, blah, 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 the Gazoo Racing profile, sports profile. Of course, I never heard of Gazoo. Um, but he put it straight to me and immediately, I've got it now. I haven't driven a white car. <laughs> For 30 years, and I'm now driving it. Yeah, and literally, yeah. after he put it to me like that, he sold me. And I thought, my God, how easy it is to sell me. But he knows how to work me. Mm. And uh, it's, it's a really is a, an unbelievably important skill. Very. I mean, I, I have certain clients that I know what their interests are. I mean, it's a really big, important client, CEO level, whatever. You know, there's one in particular in London who is obviously a New Zealander. So I've got to know all about the All Blacks. I got to know who's playing at Twickenham this week. I'm not a great rugby fan, but I need to know all this stuff. You know what, what the Lions doing, etc. Uh, he's also making shot, so he shoots pheasants, pheasants and partridge. I need. I'm luckily I grew up in that world in Scotland. So when is the pheasant season? When is the partridge season? <laughs> I need to know about these things because that's the conversation we're going to have. Um, and, and and then he feels comfortable with it because he likes my military background. I know that, so I can. T- I don't overdo that, but I touch on it a wee bit, but don't overdo it. Um, so it's just knowing what is that different strokes, different folks. Larry, I want to uh, wish I want you to sign this book for me. But uh, this is Larry's book. Uh, why listen to, work with, and follow you, <laughs> me, you. So, uh, and this is by Larry Robinson from Robinson and Burns. Burns doesn't exist, um, and, and he's a very successful guy in terms of um, dealing with people at high levels in relation to leadership and at, at all levels for that matter. It's all sitting in here in this book. Reckon you should go and buy it. Where, where do they buy it from? Booktopia? Um, Booktopia, Amazon online, but also bookstores. It's on Audible and it's on ebook. Yeah. So, All those things. I should just say that the youngest client I was age eight, the eldest eight. 81. Well, that's not a bad range. <laughs> eight to 81. Range. 30 countries, 275 nationalities, I think. Good to see you, Larry. And rough balance, female, male. Bye bye. Good on you, mate. Good, thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast.